Hello and welcome back to Intern Investing. I'm Connor, joined by Zane and Jamie as always today. Thank you guys for tuning in, uh, listening or watching wherever you're getting your podcasts from, whether it's on YouTube. Um, and if you're on YouTube, you've seen all of the content that we've been posting lately. Zane, uh, Jamie, and myself, we've been bringing a ton of people on talking about why we own different stocks and a variety of other video articles as well. So thank you on YouTube. Please subscribe to our channel. Um, and then on the podcast platforms, leave a review, leave a comment. That helps us out. Um, we're on Apple. We're on Spotify and Amazon Music. We're not on Google Play yet. We should probably get on there. But Zane, Jamie. I've been lying to everyone. I said we're on all platforms. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think we're on all <laughs> platforms yet. <laughs> I hope we don't have too many Android listeners. Um, but anyways, we, we have... So I, okay, so I... I did some research this week, um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff. So today I'm going to be talking about why we're potentially entering the decade of the dividend. This is a title of an article from a company called The London Company. And basically the, the report is sharing why they think that dividend players or companies that pay you know, better than normal dividends are going to outperform the market over the next 10 years. And the case was really, really strong. So I want to share a lot with that. Um, Hasn't that been the case, though? Maybe not in the last 10, but like over the long term, like 50, 100 years. Yes. Yes. Okay. Bel so believe it or not, 50 per or 60% of the total return for the S&P 500 um, since 1930 has been made up from dividends. You wouldn't think that. So 60% of the total return. Think, think about if you're not reinvesting your dividends and you're investing in the S&P 500 since 1930, you're only going to get 40% of what you would have if you had invested and if you had reinvested those dividends. So that really goes to show how important dividends are. And we'll just jump right into it. We'll, we'll just keep on rolling right now. So, so the reason that dividends are so important at different periods of time is because of, you know, you, you have to take into account where the market is. You have to take into account valuations. Um, and then everything reverts back to the mean. That's, that's what uh, dividends do over time. So from 2010 to 2020, dividends made up 26% of total return. This is far below the 60% mean since 1930. In the 2020s, it is made up only 16% of the S&P 500's total return. So what the report from the London company is highlighting is that dividends could revert back to the mean of around that 60% total. And this typically happens in a down market or a bear market is when dividends make up a larger portion of total return because price appreciation is doing nothing. So if you have a decade like 2000 to 2008, let's say, where the market just remained flat for that entire decade, there is no price appreciation built into returns for the S&P 500. You want to know what outperformed in that decade? Dividend players, dividend stocks, dividend funds, all of anything that's related to any strong cash flow company that's paying out a significant dividend is going to outperform in those areas. Um, and a lot of times, if you can find a company that is appreciating, that is growing, 
and they're paying out a dividend and that dividend is growing year over year, you're going to be extremely successful. And that's definitely in the data. Um, and, and I pulled some data this week. So earlier this week, I, I read this report about how dividends could be more important in the next decade. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. This kind of made me think about how if we're in market corrections, dividends dividend funds may do better. And so I went back and I found um, this research report from, I can't remember where it was from, but basically it was just a list of all the corrections in the U.S. stock market dating back to its you know, very beginnings. And I started in 1995. Why? I, I don't know. I just decided 1995 was the right year to do it. It's about you know, uh, it's, it's a little over, over 20 years. So 25, 30 years. Um, and what I found was in the correction of 1997, it was a 30 day correction. Vanguard dividend growth index outperformed the S and P by 7%. 1998, there was a one month correction. Vanguard dividend growth index outperformed by nearly 14%. Same thing in 99, it's 5%. Same thing in 2000, 2002 correction, 9% outperformance. Out of the 14 corrections that we have had since 1995, the Vanguard Dividend Growth Index has outperformed 13 of those 14 times. It's pretty impressive. So I think what the London companies report is saying might have some validity to it. Like I definitely think that there is a big opportunity for dividends uh, and dividend, like if, if you're thinking about investing somewhere, thinking about a Vanguard dividend growth index is maybe somewhere where you should look. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. I, I have one thought um, kind of from that end piece. I, I think that if you're looking to invest in some sort of dividend play or, or, a, or an ETF with dividends, then that might be a good idea. But, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, I guess just the observation that I had is that, like, if dividends, uh, a dividend ETF is outperforming during recessions, that's kind of like a yeah, no, duh, right? Because a lot of companies reporting dividends are notoriously stabler companies that are They're yeah, resilient. It, yeah, uh, maybe not even resilient, but slower moving, less volatile, um, less sensitive to to market downturns. So, I mean. I, I don't know. I, I, I think that's a smart way to um, in, in, in invest, but not. I don't know. I, I, I don't necessarily know where I was going with that. I guess other than the fact that, um, yeah, obviously an ETF might perform better when they're focusing on dividends because those are slow moving companies. Uh, yes, I, and I think that's become more true in the last five, ten years. I don't know if it was always that way because a lot of times, like in look back at the early two thousands, you have some companies that were up significantly during that bubble that were paying dividends. So I don't know if that's always been true. It's definitely true in the last five years that dividend payers are a little less volatile, but. Um, yeah, I get I get where you're where you're going with that. And this is another point that we made on a podcast, Jamie. I think this is when Zane was gone, and we've totally lost Zane at this point in the podcast. <laughs> I don't know where he is. Hopefully, he joins uh, joins back. But this is a point that we made over the summer 
where when um, the bill passed through the house and yeah. it was going to be a 1% tax on buybacks, we were like, okay, well, there's, there's two ways to repay shareholders. There is buybacks and there's dividends. If one of them's getting taxed and one of them's not, where's my money going? It's going towards dividends. Your yeah. dollars go further there. And so I think that could be another reason that dividend players um, play a larger role in the overall market in the next decade. The one, Especially the if one, that tax goes up. The one question that I kind of, I, I, I had about this was, I, I, I understood that dividend stocks would, would be, you know, much less, uh, more, much more resilient, uh, you know, during a recession. But um, I, I, going back to kind of what I said earlier, it might be because these businesses are more slow moving and less um, sensitive to stock price movements. Because if dividend payers are also going into a recession, why would they raise their dividend? Wouldn't they just kind of, uh, you know, maintain their dividend or even pull it back slightly to hoard cash, reserve cash? Um, I mean, that's what I would do if, if I was a business and I was paying a dividend and we're going into some really uncertain times. I might pull back that dividend, hoard that cash to, you know, make sure we're still viable if, it, if this recession or, you know, whatever we're going to call it, whatever we're in right now, um, uh, you know, gets, gets worse or is prolonged. Wouldn't they pull back that dividend, uh, you know, just a little bit? And so I, I'm, maybe that's flawed in, in, in my thinking, but I'm thinking that most of that outperformance is because these are stable companies, not necessarily because of, of that dividend uh, payment uh, that's kind of boosting uh, artificially returns. Obviously, that has some uh, aspect to it, and it's going to boost that, that total return uh, to, to some extent, but I'm not sure that's um, the primary driver of it, I guess. Yeah, Zane, you had something? Yeah, I was just going to say another thing that comes to mind is when you're talking about dividend stocks, right? There's kind of, I think, a life cycle of companies and they start, they'll, you know, as they mature, right, there comes a point where they're like, okay, let's start rewarding shareholders. We'll start to distribute some of the capital that we've built up and the free cash flow that we've made. So what we're going to do is pay dividends and buy back stock. That's great. But it kind of starts a little bit at first, and then it's kind of expected to ramp. So I'd be interested to see if you're better off buying companies that are on the more mature end of the spectrum. Say their dividend payout ratio is something like greater than 50%, right? So most of their cash is going to dividends or, or share buybacks or whatever uh, versus a company that's maybe just started that. Um, I think that would be something interesting to look at because then you can see you know, how much of the growth is going to be price appreciation versus dividends. The, the, the total, like, I, I guess the main point that I want people to take away from this is that we're at a point here where the historical average for the dividend payout ratio in the S&P 500 has been 48%. Today, it's only at 31%. So is that payout ratio going to come back to its historical average, especially when buybacks are getting taxed. Buybacks have become increasingly popular over the last five years. Uh, a, a lot of um, stock-based compensation has been offset by stock buybacks that companies do. Well, what if, what if there's more focus on dividends in, in the future? Okay, that's one reason. No, that, that's one key takeaway. And the other key takeaway is very simple. It's that we've got high inflation, Tighter monetary policy is uh, definitely possible, if not a given. Uh, we're going to have a Fed meeting on 
tomorrow, right? Fed, Fed meeting tomorrow. Yeah. yeah two yeah. o'clock. Um, so as you're listening to this, this will be yesterday at two o'clock because we're recording this on Tuesday, but we're expecting at least 75 basis point hike at the, at this meeting. That's what everyone's expecting. And so when we have this tighter monetary policy, price appreciation in the market becomes, it, it, it's, it's not happening as much. Um, very less probable is price appreciation in, in the index. So where does most of total return come from? Comes from dividends. And that's why it's so important to reinvest those dividends because they make up so much of your total return as an investor. Uh, if you are investing in a vehicle like, you know, SPY or VU. So I have one question, one question to pose you guys. Um, so the S&P 500 high dividend, SPYD, um, that is an ETF, versus SPY, S&P 500. What will see a higher increase in terms of total return in the next year? Who's going to perform better? That's such a simple answer for me. It's got to be the high dividend. There's there's no way that I mean we we've been talking about it this entire time that not only do dividend stocks and those dividend ETFs tend to perform better during recessions whether in one or not you know multiple different definitions you'll get multiple different answers but that aside we're in some sort of market turmoil right now the the stocks that will be that are in the SPYD um, much more resilient companies much more stable growers they're probably outperforming the market by just remaining flat or only falling you know five percent or something like that add on those nice dividends you're going to get a better return than the broad market the b- broad market's down what like 20 percent year to date maybe even more I don't know it, it's being driven down by a lot of those uh, those growth stocks um, you know in in the in the SPY and the s p 500 so I mean taking the uh, the stable side of that the slow growing side of that that's less sensitive to to market volatility that I mean that seems like a no-brainer to me I agree, Jamie. I think if you're putting your money on SPY out of these two options right now, you're basically calling the bottom because in order for that to succeed, that bet to pay off, I feel like the Fed needs to turn around. You have to have a complete reversal in terms of interest rates and they need to start uh, kind of loosening up their monetary policy. You need to have a complete shift of investor preference away from free cash flow and towards growth like we saw in 2021. I just think that's so unlikely at this point. That uh, that I'd side with you, Jamie, and I think that's what Connor likes to hear after after all the research that he put into it. <laughs> Listen, that means that that means I'm a good salesman. Both of y'all, <laughs> both of y'all, believe me. Um, well, I, I will say there are a few people calling for the bottom. Bill Ackman, J.P. Morgan. Um, there's a there there's a few banks and a few people that are calling the bottom of the market right now. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I saw. I hope it's uh, the bottom. I saw something today. Um, it was like Chamath Palhapatia um, closed down two of his SPACs because he couldn't find a company to acquire. And that people are taking that as quite the sign of a bottom. Like if you can't find a company to acquire with a SPAC and that, that's your whole purpose, um, it seems like, okay, this, this could be the, the worst point. Uh, we're at, and, and you know, he had kind of had a name behind it as well. So it seems like in competition with other specs, he would have a pretty good chance to to win the bid. Uh, but I don't know. I, I think that's kind of right. I, I haven't thought that we'd be in a long recession for for a while. Like I never thought it would be more than two, three, 
maybe a year at most. So I, I think if the bottom's not in yet, I feel like it's got to be close. Uh, look, I, I think Chamath is like the best indicator because this man might have been like the best market timer of the past like five years. This man brought SPACs to fruition, like right as the, the market craze was like getting higher. He sold out like basically at the top. And now he's saying, OK, we can't find anything. He's timing the bottom. If there's any indicator that I'm looking at for the bottom, Chamath is it, he, he's giving me some weight, at least even if it's a small amount of, of weight and confidence that we're at the bottom. Chamath kind of the guy just because he's been so good at marking time in the past few years as soon as i see another shirtless picture of chamas <laughs> in the mirror i'll know it's the bottom <laughs> he called it with the top and he'll call it with the bottom <laughs> okay. have either of y'all heard of the spiva report no what's that no so the spiva report listen y'all y'all don't do a good job of looking over the dock I put this in well, here not, for you guys to read, but now it's just um, not not prior to that. Yeah, not until okay, you put okay. it in the doc. Okay, good stuff. Good stuff. So the Spiva report basically calculates how many active managers are beating the index. Uh, they they look at whatever benchmark those active managers would fit in. So if you have an active manager that's got a you know U.S. large cap blend fund, then they're going to compare it against a benchmark of U.S. large cap blend. Like that's what they are. That's what their benchmark is, and so they're going to compare it to that and see how active managers are doing compared to whatever benchmark they might uh, you know be be facing against. So, anyways, the report came out for um, 2022, and. It looks pretty good. Okay, so 2021, you had 85% of all active managers missing the benchmark returns. So they did not beat their benchmark. Active managers are out there every day. They're selling their funds saying, listen, the reason that you should buy this fund is because I am a better manager than this passive investing method. 85% of them failed in 2021, even more so in the growth-related um, sector specifically for active managers in the growth oriented, uh, which, which kind of goes to show that a lot of growth managers really fell into the, uh, into the value trap that, that have not the value trap, the opposite. Uh, I don't even know what you call that. Uh, growth, growth trap. trap. No. The growth <laughs> trap you know, when, when yeah, they, you don't care about valuations whatsoever. Um, but anyways, I thought this was really interesting. So, Active managers have performed much better this year than they did last year. And that's what typically they always say is that active managers perform better in down markets than up markets. So I don't know. It just kind of goes to show that maybe active managers are, are, they know how to navigate a bear market. And usually because if you're talking about hedge funds, well, the key component of a hedge fund is the hedging piece. And so if you have a hedge fund, uh, you know, that's hedging, whatever benchmark it, it, it might be focused on, then obviously they're going to outperform uh, outperform the benchmark. Yeah, I think when you have the hedges on, that's going to help you in the bear market. That's kind of been the case uh, with hedge funds. One other interesting thing, since we're talking about hedge funds, is uh, the trend. I don't know if you guys heard of this, but like, th there's been a trend towards people not wanting to pay for beta, if, if that makes sense, in terms of, yeah, you know, we'll let you manage our money, but you need to hedge out all of the beta risk 
And then the only uh, outperformance will be due to alpha, which is your pure stock picking ability. I, even if I knew all that goes into the mechanics of making that hedge work, uh, I probably wouldn't get into it right now. Uh, but I just think that's an interesting concept that you can find a way to actually pay for stock picking ability. And honestly, I think if everyone, if every manager did that, the results might even be worse than they are because we're going to see some um, managers just do better than the index because of high, be high beta names. Uh, but I guess the reverse could be true as well. Yeah, I think the, it depends on the time frame that you're looking at. If you're looking at if you're looking at funds with high beta, in up markets they're probably going to perform well. In down markets they're probably going to perform a lot worse. But there is so another interesting thing about the shift of active managers is in the '90s it was about what hot stock are you getting. In the 2000s it was about what active manager, what you know, great manager. Are you using? Is it like a Peter Lynch, or maybe it was the '80s, and then the '90s was like, what manager are you using? Is it like a Peter Lynch style who just crushed the market over his tenure at uh, at Fidelity? Um, and then the recent shift has been, screw all this, I'm just going to invest in the S and P 500 because nobody can beat it. And things like the Spiva report, which comes out every single every six months, just are it, it's pure data that shows it's really freaking hard to beat your benchmark uh, and, and very few active managers can do it. The one, th the one thing that I, I saw from um, this, this report the, and specifically the graph that you put into the doc, Connor, was that since 2001, there were three years, three out of so over 20 years, only three years, the majority of or over 50% of active managers actually outperformed the market. All the other 18 years, um, managers on an average have underperformed the market. The, the majority have underperformed the market. So, I, I mean, that's, that's probably why we've seen this resurgence of, uh, you know, the heck with the active managers. I'm just going to invest in the, the VOO or, you know, or, or the SPY myself. It's because managers have a terrible track record of consistently outperforming the market. Now, I'm sure there are a few, but, uh, you know, on aggregate, looking at the average of all active managers, they're not outperforming the market in the majority of, of years. They're underperforming almost every single year. Yeah, I but wish I had new... the I wish I had the stats in front of me, but it comes back to the thing for me. If you look at how well you can do just dollar cost averaging into an index fund versus if you had perfect market timing, it's like you make a couple extra percent over the a course of like five or ten years if you can perfectly time the market, right? So you might as well just dollar cost average and, and passive seems to be working out. The only point, the only problem though is I think at a certain point you could be really inflated in a couple names, right? Cause like Apple, like, you know, Fang stocks, the big tech names, right? They're making up so much of the S and P 500 and so many ETFs that maybe we get to the point where they're a little bit inflated. If people are piling into index funds. Another interesting thing here, um, is that it's, it's almost like active managers have given up and they're on to their next pursuit. And that is low beta, same returns. Or low beta, maybe a little less returns. And so yeah. th their, their promotion now is not, hey, we've got the best stocks. We're going to outperform our benchmark. It's now, hey, listen, we've got this strategy here. 
where we are combining, you know, different option strategies or whether we're putting low beta securities in our fund, you know, through alternatives or whatever, you know, vehicle they might be using to get this low beta. But this, the outcome is supposed to be the same as the benchmark. It's not supposed to beat the benchmark or maybe even be a little bit less, but the road to get there is going to be a lot less treacherous in that the lows will not be as low as the index and the highs will not be as high. But at the end of those five years or however, however long that fund's time frame might be, you'll end up at the same place without having to endure those ups and downs, which I think and is people interesting. Are, people are willing to pay for that. I mean, yeah. I would. If you could, if yeah. you could offer me the you know less risk for the same, same returns of the S&P 500, I would uh, take that all day. Um, another bet that I'm increasingly kind of wanting to take is uh, bonds right now um, and and, uh, and treasuries specifically. There have been huge inflows into treasuries over the past couple of weeks, basically April to July. Um, and I think they're getting to a point where it's pretty attractive. So I've seen Jim Cramer tweeting about this and he's like, oh, he said, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For whatever that's worth, but sure, say, sure, like treasuries. <laughs> no, but he'll say like, there's no way that you know stocks can can rally when the two year treasury is yielding close to four percent. And you know, on some level, I understand that because it's almost tempting, right? If I can lock in a risk free four percent yield, uh, that's that's pretty attractive. I mean, I'm hoping to do a lot more. And I will get a lot more return and take a lot more risk uh, since I'm since I'm young. But honestly, four percent isn't bad. And then when you factor that in, or when you factor in inflation protected securities as well, yielding over nine percent, like that, it's hard to pass up nine uh, percent yield right now after looking at my stocks falling thirty, forty, fifty, or more percent. But what do you guys think? Would you, you know, does this tempt you enough to get into fixed income at all? The inflation bonds are tempting to me. It, it tempting to me because I don't have a ton of money. I think ten thousand dollars is the cap on I bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously, I'm not going to be putting more than ten thousand dollars into anything at, at the moment. Maybe in ten years, um, I'll, I'll be wanting to put something in in one singular investment. But um, the T bills, I don't know if those are as attractive to me right now. Four percent isn't my number. And that's because I don't care about risk right now. Uh, risk isn't a major factor in my investment decisions. Maybe it should be more, um, but I've got <laughs> I've got a lot of time before I'm going to touch some of this money that I'm investing. But if I was like buying a house in two years, four percent, yes, please, like yeah, I'll take that all day. Yeah, I mean the the, the tips. The percent return on those is uh, outstanding. I mean, the, that said, that it's it's related to uh, inflation and it gets readjusted on a six month basis. So if inflation goes down, that return on uh, on those tips go down. So it's not like you're locked into nine percent for however long you hold them. It, it, it'll get uh, it, it'll decrease at at some point. The bonds, though, 
I'm actually kind of a fan of those bonds. I don't usually study bonds that often, but I'm kind of being forced to to study bonds and and all that fun stuff in my in in some of the classes I'm taking right now. And man, a four percent bond for you know pretty much guaranteed money that you're that you're getting. I mean, you said the you said the two year was four percent. It's yeah. pretty attra- that's pretty attractive to me. And if you look out a little longer, if you look at uh, you know the the ten or something like that, I don't know it off the top of my head, but it's got to be a little higher. That it's actually seen- it's actually not, which is interesting. Really, so the, the ten years around like a, a little over three, I believe, right now three close to ooh. in between three and four. If, if that ten got yeah. above four percent and got and was reaching towards five, that would be somewhat something I you know just add, just park some money in for the for the time being to do exactly what you said, Connor. You know, I, I'd be putting that buy my house money, um, which you know I'm looking to do in hopefully ten years. That's where that's where I'm I'm I would probably put my money if they were giving five percent returns. Uh, you know, at that time, that sounds pretty attractive to me. Also, think about it. If you're trying to invest in real estate, for example, which is something that I want to do down the road. I mean, you look at a look at a two year. Like, okay, say two years down the road, I want to invest in an an investment property or whatever it might be, rental property. Four um, percent for two years. Yeah, I'm just going to pile money into that. Into that. Yeah. That just, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And especially because of where I'm going to put that money in the future. You look at where the real estate market is right now in the housing market. You've got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of tightening happening from the Fed. So likely we're going to see, um, house prices just plummet. So it would be great to get 4% on the way down. And then invest at the bottom. That would just be beautiful, wouldn't it? And we can look back <laughs> two years from now. That would be great. We look back two years from now. If the housing market's at a bottom, I'll you called it, not. Connor. You just didn't do yeah. anything about it. Yeah, I called it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I, you, I love you, doing. You, you get the you get the pride of saying you called it, and you know you you just don't get any money from actually calling it. I remember when bonds were at zero, or when when the Fed funds rate was at zero. I remember yeah. I was like. Eh, and I was studying for the Series 7 at the time. So I was learning about this. And I was thinking, how can you short bonds? Because if you short bonds, like rates aren't going to go negative. Like some people speculated that rates might go negative or whatever. But I, di- I didn't think rates would actually go negative. Um, and sure enough, I should have short, shorted bonds. It was a great thought that I had, but I didn't do it. Yeah, that, I mean that's a tough call to go and, and short them because it's such a such a safe uh, security. Uh, that would be tough for me. But at that point, like you know, with basic thinking, you're like okay, zero percent, it can't get much, can't get much worse than this. It's got to be, it's got to move in my direction. But I don't know. I mean, it's been negative in Europe, so we'll we'll see. Yeah. Speaking of Europe, though, I kind of. Kind of wanted to at least touch on this graph on energy costs as percentage of GDP because um, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, this has been the story because of um, you know the the Russia Ukraine war. So in 2022, we have energy costs as a percentage of GDP at 14 percent, and that's the that's the world average, uh, which is just ridiculous compared to. 2020, it was 
about 4%, it looks like. Uh, so near tripling in just a couple of years. And I think, you know, that that war has something to do with it. But also, I think OPEC is keeping oil supply pretty low to keep prices up. Um, and I don't know, we'll, we'll see where this goes. But what I think is really interesting throughout all of this is that renewables are still doing super well. I don't know if you guys own any of these like renewable stocks, but I own Enphase and Solar Edge, and they have been on a tear. It's like they're like what recession? What are you talking about? What uh, what energy crisis? Just been performing so well. Um, it kind of keeps me super confident in the future. So that's my little rant on energy, but I wanted to throw that in there. I swear that's just the artificial intelligence that's picking up on energy and headlines, <laughs> which has been related to renewables for so many years. But now it's actually related to, you know, like gas and stuff like that, like uh, traditional energy. And the artificial intelligence managers are just scooping up tons of solar edge and all these other renewable companies. I don't know. Zane, I, I, I kind of have a bone to pick with this chart. I think it's like bordering on a chart crime. Not not to put a damper on your energy talk, but we're we're comparing 2022. We're comparing 2022, 2021, and 2020. Now we should remind everybody if you know you were living under a rock or something, but 2020 was when nobody was moving. Nearly every country in the world was in lockdown. So yeah. No, energy cost as, as a percentage of GDP is going to be basically true. Near zero. True, and, that's true. Then, but GDP also probably went down. Well, it, it did go down. We were in recession. Yeah, but it, it, it's not nearly at the rate that energy spending or energy costs went down. That went to nearly zero. GDP, yeah, it slumped a little bit. So I, I think we have an artificial, artificially low figure there. And then we're looking at 2022 where gas prices and energy costs are through the freaking roof because of Russia and that entire situation. Uh, GDP's, you know, remaining roughly flat. So we're getting an, a, you know, an artificially inflated boost on 2022. 2021's kind of normal. So I don't think you can really glean any major insight from this because of how artificially baked 2022 and 2020. I think, I think the one insight that I'm gleaning is holy shit, energy prices are all over the place. And if we can get a low-cost alternative to be more universal, like solar and wind, then that, that's going to be a winner. And I think that kind of goes back to why those stocks are performing so well. But I agree, this, this is not the best comparison of 2020 to 2022 uh, energy well, costs. So listen to, listen to some of these year-over-year numbers. This is as of September 20th. Uh, UK electricity is up 70% in the last year. Germany's up 160%. France is up 422% over the last year. And Italy's up 147%. I mean, I think, a lot of I that is those, the inflation, but go ahead. Well, that me. is inflation. I mean, true, energy I mean, is driving everything else, you know? That's true. So. That, that is inflation. Uh, yeah, good thing we don't have those nuclear reactors anymore. Good thing we shut those down. <laughs> Definitely don't need them. <laughs> we need to be doing uh, so many of those. God, for for me to actually, you know, like take this chart seriously, I wish they'd go back just like ten years, and that would make an ugly chart that would take up like probably like two feet. Um, but I just like to see that kind of normalized out a little bit for me to actually, um, you know, give give the chart that you shared any uh, actual um, weight. In my opinion, Jamie, you heard the numbers; they're still up a lot. 
Yeah. They're, they're up big time. That's from 2021, you know, when, when everything's open. So, I mean, can you imagine paying 40 bucks on your electricity bill and then, you know, waking up next year and it's 160 bucks? That would suck. That would really suck. And we're not even putting any fuel costs into this. So, I mean, that's yeah. brutal. Jamie, did you see what I threw in for you at the end of the doc? Um, I did. What? Let's see. What was it? Give me. Give me an insight. <laughs> I was just oh, looking. Yes, e-commerce. There we go. I immediately thought of you. I was like, "Wow, Jamie's gonna love this." Yeah. No, I, I was. I was looking at it, and I didn't even see the the note that you put under it. But it, it shows top ten countries um, in showing the percent change in uh, in growth in e-commerce. Basically, just you know, adoption in e-commerce. And so, what are the the top five? Philippines, India, India, Indonesia, Brazil, Vietnam, and then there's also some some other um, South, South American countries, Southeast Asian com- countries, and then uh, U.S. locking in uh, the the number ten spot. What does that signal to me? Mercado Libre and C Limited still have thriving e-commerce markets. Yeah, sh- uh, you know, uh, U.S. based e-commerce platforms, Etsy, Shopify, the like, that are primarily focused in uh, United States and Europe. They're they're kind of uh, dying right now, but there, there are a lot of countries that are rapidly adopting some of these digital technologies like fintech and e-commerce. Um, that's not really stopping, even though the global economy is is seeing some slowdown. So a lot of these uh, countries, and you can see it in Mercado Libre and C Limited's earnings report, they're continuing to just post shattering growth, and they're they're not really seeing any slowdown despite uh, rising inflation, basically worldwide. Um, and, and it's because these uh, emerging countries like the Philippines, like Indonesia, like Brazil, they're adopting e-commerce faster than um, than than re- regular retail commerce. So, uh, yeah, uh, bull case for Shopify uh, for uh, C Limited Mercado Libre right there. I got to pull the trigger and buy them before it's just one of those companies that I'm constantly like, oh, I'll get them at some point, <laughs> you know, yeah, next paycheck or whatever. I think I, so. I think this is really interesting because if you look at investing in e-commerce in North America or probably some places in Europe, the value proposition is really not that great. You're like, I think there's there's not maximum market penetration, but there is a lot of market penetration that has happened over the course of the last decade. You look I, at some of the players that Jamie. Do you do you disagree with that? Yeah, I was uh, I was reading up on some U.S. Trade Administration stuff. Retail e-commerce in the U.S. only makes up about twenty percent of total um, retail sales. Uh, that's that's just in the U.S. Uh, it's expected to grow to about twenty two percent by twenty twenty four. But still, um, not, not fully think, penetrated. But continue. Yeah, but I I don't think that it. I don't know if it ever really will get much above twenty percent. Like twenty percent is a lot. That's a fifth of all purchases are done online. Uh, I may eat my words on this statement. I don't know. But I don't feel like it'll ever get above 25% uh, of total retail. But that's just me. Um, And so if I'm investing in e-commerce companies, definitely want to be in some like Mercado Libre, like C-Limited, both of which I'm invested in right now, that is that, that that both are really relevant in some of these smaller markets that are growing really really quickly. Because I invest in Amazon not for their e-commerce. I, I'm actually not invested in Amazon, but if I invested in Amazon, I would not invest in them for their e-commerce. I would invest in them for AWS. Um, that's the big value proposition for Amazon. It's not e-commerce because I think, like I just said, there's a lot of market penetration that has happened. But in these smaller markets. 
C-limited Mercado Libre markets, there's a lot of a lot of market penetration to happen. So, so Connor, as you've been doing some budgeting, I wanted to ask if you, uh, you know, came across any personal finance tips or uh, or anything. And don't oh, don't just say I spend a Get, lot more money than I want to. <laughs> I, man, I, okay. I I think I think Connor has a tip. Get his co-host to actually pay for Riverside for the months that we didn't pay, so he can actually. <laughs> <save money. laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. Listen. I I I was looking over my credit card bill, and it was a little hefty. Okay. I just moved into an apartment. Um, you know, a lot of furniture. A lot of costs are, are, are entering my pockets right now, and my pockets ain't too deep. But um, personal finance tips. Uh, I just try to invest money, and that money is just not there. Like, I never have it. And so if I am having to find other ways to, to bring in some income to cover costs, that's fine. But I want that money to continue to get invested. And that's yeah. because I'm so young. When I'm 40... I don't think that that will be as big of a deal, but the opportunity that I see is 40 years in the future. What is that money worth? What What is the future value of my money that I am making today? Well, it's not going to be seen as I buy a new iPhone. It's going to be seen in 40 years when it's invested in an index fund or whatever company it, it may be invested in. So that's kind of the pers- perspective that I try to have. Um, I did buy an iPhone. So for everyone that was wondering if Apple was actually going to sell a bunch of iPhones, well, I'm I'm a customer. I got an iPhone 14 today. It's pretty sweet. I haven't gotten a new iPhone in a number of years, but it's pretty nice. So the reason I wanted to ask about that is because I was talking to Brian Withers, and mm-hmm. he said um, there there's a statistic from Mr. Money Mustache, if you guys know him, and he says like the for the, I forget exactly what it is, but something like along the lines of for the average person, even if you save 10 percent of your income every year, right? It's going to take you 51 years to have enough money to retire, which, you know, you'll, you'll have a retirement in all likelihood, but it's like, wow, even at 10%, you're still waiting that long. And I think most people would, you know, aspire to have the optionality for early retirement. That kind of hit me. And I thought, wow, I need to be uh, serious about my savings rates. So I actually have something to, to invest in, to invest with, uh, you know, Money to put in the market so I can lose all of it, basically. <laughs> well, I think I think a lot of it is about valuing your time. Putting a value on your time is important and understanding what that value is. So when I was doing a bunch of freelance work for The Motley Fool, um, obviously, I'm still doing a little bit of that. But when I was doing a ton of that, I came up with an hourly rate for myself. And I said, my time is worth $50 an hour. And so, yes, I can be Mr. Cheapskate. And every time I go to the grocery store, I look through the coupon books or I look through my Kroger app and I find all the coupons and I do all of this stuff. And it takes me 30 minutes. And then I go and I save $3 at Kroger. I can go do all that. But what is your time worth? And if you understand that your time is worth $25 in those 30 minutes, maybe you would rather spend that doing freelance work where you're putting putting ideas together for a video that you're going to do an article that you're going to write. I think that's a mindset shift that you have to have too, because it's not all about saving. It's about how can you increase your income? That is the way that you retire early. It's not, it's not about saving as much as you possibly can. It's like, we really need to increase this income. So 10% can allow me to retire at 45 instead of 51 years from now. I think that's important too. 
Yeah. Someone come sponsor us so our podcast time isn't worth zero dollars an hour. <laughs> I know. That's what that's that's what we need. We need we need uh Y charts quarter. Um who else who else we got? Brad Freeman. He should be sponsor our, our podcast. <laughs> that's funny. But, uh, but the, the other thing that that Brian and I were talking about. Um, if you're interested in these videos, check them out on YouTube. Um, the most recent ones with, with Brian Withers. Um, but he had a bull case that he shared with for Shopify, uh, for Twilio and for lemonade. And the lemonade one was super refreshing. I know I might be going kind of off the rails here, but you know, I invest in this company and it was nice to hear him restate the thesis that I had at the time about how it's a fundamentally different insurance business um, and, and it actually has some value proposition customers like it. There's word of mouth marketing. Um, and you know, it made me feel like, okay, maybe their loss ratios aren't great right now. Uh, but they're the, not the as approach, bad. Right. They're exactly. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's like, that was a blip on the radar and the thesis is still intact. But anyway, that, that like made my day. I was like, you know what? That was amazing to hear that in a time where it seems like, uh, you can throw a stone and find someone who has a, bear case on lemonade right now. I, I, I think that's, thought. I think that's the point of like, I don't know. I personally don't keep a, a an, an investing journal, um, a, like a formal one, but for me, my investment journal is all of the articles I write because in every single article, article, I explain what my thesis is and why I think that thesis is, is still strong. And so whenever I feel crappy about a company, I did this with lemonade. I went back, you know, uh, five, six months, whenever I first started writing about Lemonade, and I just reread what I had already wrote and why I was so optimistic about the company. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I, 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 you're right. I forgot that this company is disrupting the, the insurance industry. And I forgot that I literally said in my own words that this loss ratio isn't going to be great for the next year or two, but it's going to slowly and steadily improve. And right now, all I want is that ratio to get below 75% but i i it that's but not that what i had previously on, stated that that thesis was built on the cost of capital remaining extremely low which has come up significantly in the last year too so that's something to to add in yeah I, but honestly, I, I agree but at, at at the same point i mean this is what what they put in their uh their shareholder letter they i mean they stated that they should re remain, uh, you know, they, they won't need to raise any capital until they become profitable yeah. or it was, maybe it was free cash flow positive. I can't remember because that's just off the cuff, but, um, yeah. self-sustaining, uh, I think is the yeah. words that they exactly. Used. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm a half believer in lemonade. I used half to be believer. a full believer and then I was a non-believer and now I'm a half believer. <laughs> are, are you one of those people, you're one of those people who does a shave of a position. If it starts going kind of, you know, if it goes up too much to do a shave, it's like, if you're going to shave it, if you're going to sell some of it, then just sell all of it. You know what I mean? If you don't have the conviction, I just, I just don't do any, I don't do a ton of allocation changing in my portfolio. Like I feel Same. good about a company. I buy way too much of it. <laughs> and then I, I just I just leave it in there, you know, and we'll just let the Pretty let much. the roller coaster ride. Yeah. Next week you're like, why did I buy that? What am I doing? Lemonade Lemonade was such a. I mean, that was one that I was like, why did I buy so much of this company? I think I bought like five percent of my portfolio in Lemonade. Oh my god! And that was at seventy dollars a share. 
Well, aren't, aren't, aren't you a, aren't you a customer, Connor? Yeah, I am. And I love it. I, I mean, I, I that's, that's part of, you gotta listen to yourself there, man. <laughs> I know. I'm yeah, still waiting for them to come to Maine. I got the, I got the Pam goggles on when, when I started looking at lemonade. I was like, wow. It's a big industry. It's a great company. The Tam goggles. I'm going to make you a yeah. pair of Tam goggles from ship them to your house. <laughs> I would, I would, I bet you I can get someone on Etsy to, to make me some Tam goggles. That oh, for sure. Incredible. You're like incredible. Metro mile. Mm, let's go. More. <laughs> yeah. Funny. So. Anyways, Zane, you want to close us out? I think that was a good one. Yeah, that, that was that was good. We we uh, rambled on for a while there, but we covered a lot of good topics. Um, yeah, if you're interested in more uh, from us on the podcast, you can find these podcasts on all platforms except for Google Play. But we'll we'll get <laughs> <Yes>. there. <laughs> we'll make we'll get sure Connie gets them up there. So almost all platforms um, or on YouTube. Uh, like I mentioned before, you can check us out there. Um, yeah, like subscribe and share the video if you learned something. We hope you all did. Thank you all for watching or listening, and we'll see you in the next one.